Welcome to the Thank God for Bitcoin podcast. My name is Jordan Bush. I am the head of content and education for TGFB Media. Uh, we are a company that exists to help Christians understand and use money, uh, specifically Bitcoin, for the glory of God and the good of people everywhere. Um, so today we have the privilege of sitting down with uh, my co-host on the Thank God for Noster podcast uh, and a Noster developer. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and, and let him introduce himself. Thanks, Jordan. Uh, and thanks for having me on uh, the Thank God for Bitcoin podcast. Uh, my name is John. I'm also known as Hanobod, and uh, I am the uh, d uh, developer of the Coracle.social Noster client. Um, so, and if you're not familiar, Noster is this new communications protocol that's uh, formed sort of an alternative to things like Twitter uh, and uh, has a lot of really interesting possibilities. Uh, so I'm very excited about the project and uh, glad to be here. Awesome. Yeah. And so, John, this is going to be a little crossover episode. Um, this is give you to give you guys a taste. Maybe those of you who listened to episodes of Thank God for Bitcoin, but haven't tested the waters of Thank God for Noster. Um, we want to kind of give just a little bit of, of a flavor for the kind of things that we talk about over there. Um, so, John, why don't you give us an intro to who you are and how in the world you uh, you became, you were a Bitcoiner before you were in a Noster. So why don't you kind of you know, give us a little bit of background uh, and then kind of tell your, your Bitcoin story, how and why you got interested in Bitcoin. Yeah, I was a Christian before I got into Bitcoin too. So yeah, I uh, went to a small liberal arts college um, and uh, didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, then I got an internship with a software company and became a programmer. That was about 11 years ago and I've been doing that ever since. Um, in 2020, uh, well, I guess a little bit before that, uh, I heard about Bitcoin, um, but I'm actually a little bit of a Luddite, and so I wasn't interested. I just thought, uh, it's magic internet money. Uh, I don't care. Uh, I don't care about uh, blockchains or smart contracts or any of that kind of stuff. And then uh, 2020 happened, and it was actually kind of tangential to the events of 2020 that got me into Bitcoin, but uh, I started listening to the Investors Podcast uh, with uh, Stig Broderson and Preston Pish, uh, just because I thought I needed to handle my money a little bit better. And I wanted to hear from the experts. Um, value investing made a lot of sense to me. And uh, so I was uh, enjoying that podcast. And then they had a conversation where Preston Fish talked about uh, hyperinflation as a result of all of the stimulus that was being uh, spent uh, using under the Paycheck Protection Program and um, all that stuff that was going on in mid-2020. Um and he then uh, later that year started the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast in November. And that is uh, when everything clicked. He had Robert Breedlove on and they talked for four, six, nine, 12 hours, you know, something like that. <laughs> this is typical. And, um, and uh, about what the characteristics of money are and why Bitcoin um, is better money than anything else. And I was completely sold at that point, uh, jumped into the market and started honling through, uh, I guess it was sort of the uh, beginning of the bull market at the time. So I wrote it up and then I wrote it all the way back down and uh, <laughs> listened to tons of podcasts. Read I've read a bunch of books. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. You could say I'm a true believer at this point. Um, <laughs> yeah. Bitcoin is the best money. Amen. I also want to uh, unfortunately break the hearts of, of any uh, of our female or single female listeners who are out there because who you know john his 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 handle is hodlebod but he's he's already married so unfortunately 
He's a one. Um, his body's being huddled by by his his you know his wife. <laughs> he's <laughs> he's 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 beyond. He's he's off the market. So uh, so sorry, ladies. Uh, but okay. So so John, you you told us your Bitcoin story. You this is how you got into Bitcoin. Um, let me just ask you this: What were some of the arguments? Was there a particular argument or two that you know as you listen to that podcast with that very excellent podcast with Robert and um, Robert and Preston? Was there one thing or the other that was particularly persuasive? Well, I, I've always been a uh, Ron Paul fan. Um, you know, he's the only politician that has any integrity, as far as I can tell. Uh, there was a story that I heard about him where he he wanted to upgrade from business uh, from uh, you know economy to business class, and so he did. And then he got in trouble because everyone said. Well, you can't spend the t- American taxpayer money to upgrade your seat on your airplane. Uh, what do you think you're doing? And he's like, no, no, no. I spend my own money. And I was like, this is the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but my, yeah. my dad spent a lot of time, uh, you know, bringing me to Ron Paul things and explaining why um, fiscal responsibility made sense. And so I had a little bit of that background. I hadn't really dug into it at all, um, but I understood why gold uh, was uh, valuable, um, yeah. why it was real money as opposed to uh, you know, uh, the debt-based money that we have now. Um, in fact, when I was a kid, every time I lost a tooth, my dad would give me a, uh, 10,000, 10th ounce gold coin, uh, instead of a quarter. <laughs> oh, <man>. So <laughs> I still have a couple of 10th ounce, uh, gold coins floating around from, uh, from when I was seven. Um, man, that's so a, that, that's a power, that's a powerful and dangerous, dangerous incentivizer there. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. just imagine little Hoddlebot running around the neighborhood stealing other kids' teeth to you know redeem them for gold. <laughs> yeah, and I'm I'm not rich enough to do that. I have four kids, so I give them uh, an ounce of silver every time they lose a tooth, and uh, that's very expensive. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So uh, so having an appreciation for sound money, and then basically just having having explained to me that Bitcoin was sound money, and that was basically the whole point of Bitcoin um, was. Uh, that that just that that really got me. It made perfect sense, and uh, everything downstream from that is um, uh, is just just a really really result of that. I, I'm interested in it from the economic perspective. You know, the concept of of the Cantillon effect is is a big thing too. That helped me understand why the current system is so broken. Um, when you can print money, uh, you have control over uh, policy and over wealth transfer. And um, you destroy savings, you destroy productivity, uh, you incentivize all the wrong things. So, um, you know, I, I, uh, the root of all our problems is sin, right? Uh, that is, the, that is the fact. But um, the root of many of our problems is economic, and our broken economy is a result of sin. So it's not yeah. that the two are uh, mutually exclusive worldviews. It's that. Um, we have, I think people generally have a blind spot to the brokenness of our economic system because we've been riding the wave for 40, 50 years of, yeah. of never ending growth in equities and in good bond yields and all that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so we, we, we have been raised in an environment in which savings is what an idiot does. Uh, you know, putting cash under the mattress is, uh, is a truism for foolish investing. Um, yeah. And in fact, I mean, that's biblical too. You've got the talent. The uh, the servant hides the talent under the ground, and that's foolish investing. But you know the Romans uh, uh, devalued their currency as well. <laughs> so yep. what we want to do with our money is we want to put it towards productive uses um, for a profit, 
uh, but also for the good of our neighbor. Um, and saving is not exactly that, but it does lead to more effective investments because uh, co companies have to um, have to hold their money somewhere. And so uh, companies in this debt uh, environment uh, spend all their time uh, trying to um, pump up their value and make more make more profit for the shareholders. Um, when really uh, that that actually uh, siphons productivity off of the the project that they're running. So yeah, uh, I mean I, I'm definitely not the expert on sound money, but uh, I uh, I yeah. appreciate the the concept a ton, and um, I'm really really thankful for Bitcoin. John, could you unpack? You mentioned uh, a phrase that we haven't we haven't really gotten into yet. We're gonna we're gonna expand on this in a lot more detail. But you mentioned the Cantillon effect. Could you kind of unpack that idea? Yeah, the Cantillon effect uh, is named after a guy named Cantillon. I don't remember exactly what he wrote about it, but <laughs> is the idea that uh, whoever creates uh, a good um, uh, because of the law of supply and demand um, can sell that good at current market market prices. But in selling it, uh, they affect the supply. Um, and so they change the price equilibrium of the market. So if there's, you know, uh, if there's a copper shortage and I hoard all the copper and then I sell all the copper onto the market, I can sell it at the current prices or something close to it. But immediately the, the market is now flooded and there's not the demand and the market collapses. So that's kind of a way that's, that's similar to the Cantillon effect. The Cantillon effect, I think, is specifically... Um, oriented towards money production, so money yep. is is kind of the standard uh, uh, along which every good is priced. And so, if you can do that with money, you create you can create that same dynamic, but in the entire economy. And so, that's what the Federal Reserve does: is they produce money, uh, they manage inflation, and as a result, uh, they get to uh, Congress gets to, gets to spend um, money at its current value. Uh, when the Federal Reserve prints it, and banks receive um, receive newly printed money uh, at the current at, at the current rates, um, and then when that money enters the system, uh, it then devalues the rest of the money in the system. And what that does over time is it has a corrosive effect uh, against the savings and uh, and um, yeah, I guess the savings of people who are not immediate uh, beneficiaries of the money printer. Um, and so it siphons wealth away from uh, regular people um, and towards the uh, system, uh, the system of control. So the banks and the and the government. Um, you know, we saw kind of the opposite with the uh, with the Paycheck Protection Program. That was money. It was helicopter money. People called it, and it went directly to recipients. Um, and so, in a sense, like that was not quite as as much of a candle on uh, sort of deal but the amount of of uh, that money that was sent out to individuals was so small compared to uh, everything that was actually printed during that time um, yeah it was really just like a pacifier so yeah that's sure. that's kind of how I understand it awesome thank you um, okay so let's let's do this so John you you are this these two this might seem for a lot of people a contradiction in terms you you are a self-declared Luddite and yet you're a software developer. How on earth does that happen? Yeah, man. It, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I my dad was a software developer, and I really think that's probably what happened. Is uh, <laughs> I just followed in uh, in the footsteps of my father, which I think is a healthy and a good thing. Uh, yeah. I also really enjoy software development. It is 
it's extremely interesting. It's absorbing. I get to like live in this world and I see, I see this, you know, the matrix all around me and I understand how things <laughs> connect and I get to build something. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's more satisfying to build something physical. I built a, a shed, uh, in my driveway a couple, uh, a couple years ago, and that was really fun. Um, so, you know, I might be a little bit happier, like, uh, taking care of animals or living on a farm or something like that. Um, but software is, is a lot of fun too. And, uh, and I, you know, we live in a technologized word world. And so, um, there's value to software as well. I think it's, it's dangerous. Uh, there's more potential for misuse of software than, than there is for, uh, physical things. Um, because, uh, you know, uh, software has a way of instrumentalizing, uh, people and, uh, and, and things it turns them into uh, numbers in a spreadsheet. Uh, you know, we saw some of this with the, um, industrial revolution. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, calculating how big of a shovel to use in order to optimize the productivity of, of, uh, people. And, uh, while that's nice for productivity numbers, um, it, uh, dehumanizes, uh, the people you're working with. So when, when working on software projects, I try to orient myself towards software that actually makes the world better. Um, that allows me to love my neighbor by creating something that, uh, that allows them to be human, um, rather than to, uh, be used by, um, to be used by some, someone else, whether it's a corporation or another person. Uh, like a really good example is my previous job before I started full-time on Nostr was I used to write consignment software. Um, and so it was just kind of backup house software and point of sale for consignment stores. And the reason that was so attractive to me is consignment and resale in general is, uh, is a circular economy. So it reduces waste and it reduces, um, uh, both in terms of like pollution and, uh, and consumption, but also in terms of uh, monetary waste. So instead of paying your fast fashion brands to produce more clothes, and then when they don't sell to destroy them and throw them into a dumpster, um, you you pay uh, your neighbor who has some some uh, article of clothing that they don't want anymore to uh, to reclaim that um, and to to bring new life into that article of clothing and to compensate the current owner for the remaining value in that thing. I uh, I'm a big fan of thrift. And uh, another idiosyncrasy of the consignment world is it's very community oriented. It's very human. Uh, it's just, you know, it's largely just a lot of ladies uh, sitting around and talking and enjoying each other's company rather than yeah. uh, sort of hustling. So um, I enjoyed that, that work a lot. It was kind of an ideal job. Um, but when 2020 came, uh, I, I sort of spent a couple of years looking around me and decided, uh, well, I said, someone needs to do someone, something about this. And after a while I decided, I guess I'm someone. So, uh, I'll go ahead and, um, uh, change jobs and get <laughs> into, uh, get into the fight. You, you obviously work on Nostr. So how, how did that all come about and how did that happen? Yeah. So obviously the, uh, the, the censorship that Twitter displayed in 2020 about the, uh, the New York post article, um, was a, was a catalyst for a lot of people, um, to realize, uh, what the state of things was. I had quit Facebook in 2017 after I learned that they store everything that you type into the new post box, even if you don't submit the post, um, and mine it for data and then sell it yet to advertisers. So I was over Facebook, uh, for five or for three years at that point. Um, but then Twitter started acting the same way and I was not expecting it because Twitter's whole ethos 
is to um, is to be the open uh, open square uh, of the internet. It's for journalists to tell stories. Uh, why are they censoring uh, stories, especially related to a election? It's crazy, uh, completely inappropriate. Um, and so I looked around and I uh, I just kind of looked into alternatives to Twitter, and I found basically Mastodon and Scuttlebutt, uh, a few others. Um, and they but they weren't really they weren't really ready. They didn't really solve the problems. Um, and so I sort of shrugged my shoulders and said, well. Well, hopefully someone does something about this. And then finally, a year later, I looked at it again and nothing had changed. And so I said, well, I'll sit down and I will solve this problem. Uh, and <laughs> I, I, I'm really <laughs> glad I thought I thought about it uh, because I, I basically articulated the project as um, this is a 10-year project with a 0% chance of success, but I'm just going <laughs> to go ahead and work on it anyway. Uh, I, I can't leave this alone. Someone needs to to work on this. So, and that was shortly after Noster was, uh, incepted. Um, and I was not aware of Noster at the time. So early 2022, uh, actually, I guess Christmas of 2021, I started working on my own protocol, uh, for, uh, for talking to multiple, uh, multiple servers at the same time. And basically that was a poor man's version of decentralization. There's a lot of, you know, blockchain and peer to peer technology used for decentralization, uh, technology, but a lot of it doesn't work. A lot of it's very slow, doesn't scale. And so uh, I thought, well, I- I'm no expert in P2P anyway, so I'm just going to do what I know how to do and hopefully it goes somewhere. Um, I discovered Noster in uh, January 3rd of 2022, signed up, said hello world, and then I left. <laughs> and uh, I tried to convince Fiat Jaff uh, to, um, to borrow from my protocol because I saw I had a vision for it that was a little bit more, I think it, um, uh, a little more complete than, than his vision for Nostra at the time. Um, it was specifically a, about moderation and, um, content recommendation. I kind of had a story for that. Nostra didn't, and still doesn't really, that's something we're figuring out. Um, and it turns out it's a much bigger project. Uh, but yeah, so I just kind of worked on my project, my protocol for about 10 months. And uh, the thing about writing a protocol by yourself is uh, you only have yourself to talk to. And the whole point of a protocol is to talk to other people. So it was not <laughs> a very encouraging uh, uh, project um, because I'm not a marketer and I, I don't want to, uh, I'm a nobody too. So I'm not going to get anybody else to uh, adopt my protocol. So finally in, uh, in uh, November of 22, I um, took Thanksgiving break and uh, decided to really figure out what I was going to do. I looked at Urbit for a couple hours, which is another sort of decentralized, um, like world computer, uh, idea. Urbit's interesting, but I don't think it was the thing. And so I just jumped into writing a client for Noster. Um, and about three weeks after that, uh, Jack Dorsey discovered my client and Damas and, um, and understood because of the, the two different clients that existed, that that uh, Noster is an interoperable protocol where people can build a whole bunch of different applications and those applications can then talk to each other um, using a, a consistent data format and uh, even more importantly, a single identity. Uh, so on Noster, your identity is a public-private key pair. So that's just like a cryptographic way of saying username and password. Um, but that username works anywhere and you can load your data in, from whatever application you use. So that's how I got into Noster. Um, 
I applied for a, a grant from FUTO, uh, and I spent three months in, in Austin uh, from February through, through May. And then at that point, I went back to my old job for a little while, uh, kind of just to make ends meet and slowly transitioned out of that. And now I am the happy recipient of an OpenSats grant for Nostra development, which um, uh, that happened just uh, kind of commenced. I, I got the first, the first grant payment just a few weeks ago. So um, I'm good for the next year to work on Nestor, which is uh, more than I ever could have expected. But yeah, there, there's been all kinds of things that God has orchestrated uh, to make this work. Um, I, I applied a day before the deadline for the FUTO fellowship, and I got that. Um, you know, there were financial things. We had a hospital bill that put a lot of stress on us. But through it all, God has been so good to us, and he has brought me so much farther than I was expecting I would be. You know, I said it was a 10-year project with a 0% chance of success. Well, I'm a year and a half in, and I think it's more like a 30-year project with like a 0.05% <laughs> chance of success. So, I mean, it's an improvement. So, yeah. <laughs> to, quote, to quote the great philosopher Lloyd Christmas, so you're telling me there's a chance. And that's what we're... <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, John, I'm sure people listening to this may have heard of... Uh, of Nostr, but maybe don't know what it is or how it works. You mentioned a little bit um, about, you know, key pairs and, and how that works. And But is if someone were to ask you, hey, I've heard of this thing, Nostr, but I don't get it, um, what would you say to them? Yeah, so Nostr is really hard to explain. It's kind of a, a little bit of a Rorschach test. Um, it's an inkblot. You look at it and you might see different things depending on what you're interested in, who you are, what your background is. Um, but the easiest way to explain it is that it's an open and interoperable protocol for, uh, for decentralized social media. Um, and that's kind of a lot of jargon, but what that basically means is that it's similar to email. Um, email is not captured by one provider. It is centralized in, in some important aspects, but, uh, you know, I can still send an email from my ProtonMail to someone else's Gmail account to someone else's Hotmail, um, and even to people's home servers, although, uh, that is kind of problematic. So um, there's a data format that works with different pieces of software. And what this does is it allows for these different pieces of software to have a shared network effect. Uh, email is so big because anyone with an email address can can email anyone else, even if they don't have the same software provider. And um, that's advantageous because uh, it creates a much bigger network uh, with more participants and therefore more value. Um, the, the thing about email though, is, uh, you know, it has this kind of security, uh, uh, bolted on after the fact, it doesn't have any data storage and then, uh, domain reputation is very hard to get right. Uh, plus it's very, very narrowly focused on messaging. Uh, Nostra kind of began as a, as a freedom of speech technology that was focused on, uh, social media in, in response to Twitter's actions in 2020. Um, and it's slowly growing outside of that, uh, the, the basic concept is that instead of storing your data on a single server that belongs to a single uh, entity and who can deplatform you at will, um, you store your data on multiple servers. And so even if one of the, one of the server owners um, wants to uh, get rid of your content, they can do it, but it doesn't remove your content from the entire network. Um, and in fact, you can run your own server uh, so that your content is always available no matter what. Um, the other thing it does is it uh, uses cryptographic signatures to prove that you said what you said. And what that does is it 
eliminates the need for someone to gatekeep and authenticate uh, content. So when I tweet something, it just goes into Twitter's database with my handle attached to it. And then when they serve my tweet, they say, well, Honolbot said that. Um, and But you don't know. Uh, we haven't seen this. We've seen um, we've seen Twitter uh, hiding content. We haven't seen it uh, faking content, but it's completely within the realm of possibility that Twitter could make Donald Trump say something that he didn't actually say. Um, the only person you have to believe is Twitter about what happens on Twitter. Uh, but with cryptography, um, you can believe uh, anything because you have proof that what that what what was said on that event uh, was said by the person who owns that uh, private key. And there's different ways to authenticate uh, your private key, whether uh, you know in person or uh, through a website that you own or something like that. Um, but you have much stronger guarantees that uh, uh, as far as the fidelity of what is actually being said. Um, and so that that uh, partially solves uh, a lot of the problems associated with uh, freedom of speech. Um, there are other problems uh, that industry doesn't really address. Um, but it also uh, opens up a lot of opportunities for new products uh, because we have this common substrate of interoperable data and identities. We can now uh, combine those in really new ways. You know, imagine if Twitter talked to Gmail and talked to, uh, excuse me, uh, to Yelp. Um, so you could leave a product review and then send that via a message to a friend, and then they could uh, shop uh, for products uh, based on what you and their other friends have said about a given thing. Um, so Nostra is a really exciting place for a developer to be right now because. Uh, we're basically rebuilding the internet from scratch, and there's uh, an infinite number of ideas and different uh, compositions of all these concepts uh, that we can put together. Yeah, and so I mean, you mentioned you mentioned some of the the decentralized aspect. I mean, the decentralized aspect of Nostra is a big part of the selling point. You mentioned a little bit about um, you know not having to leave your information on on servers that belong to Twitter or Facebook or some of these other. Um, these other, you know, companies, what, what are some of the other value um, propositions? I mean, you, you just mentioned one. I mean, I, I know one of them is that you can take your data with you, um, you know, because you're not actually like with, with, yeah. Can, can you kind of explain like the difference between, um, you know, how traditional social media works and, and how Nostr works and, and why that matters? I mean, you've kind of mentioned that in terms of s suppression, I guess, during elections, um, but what are some of the other things that the other reasons why this this is a justified thing to to work on and develop, given that you're doing what you just said? If it's really the scope that what you just described, which is we're rebuilding the internet, um, you know, what are some of the other things that that make uh, Nostra important enough to spend the time doing all of that work? Yeah. So one other dynamic apart from freedom of speech is uh, is uh, monetization of attention. Um, the way that big uh, big tech companies make money is by selling ads. Most most big tech companies aren't making well. I don't know about most, but a lot of kind of your social media companies don't make money by selling product. They make money by selling your attention to an advertiser. So an advertiser bids and they show the ads, and depending on how many clicks there are or how many uh, how many eyeballs see those ads, they the advertiser pays the platform. And so this results in all kinds of uh, perverse incentives for um, social media companies to capture uh, 
uh, almost literally their audience. Um, that that's one of the reasons that social media addiction is such a big thing. It's not that this this staring at your phone is so fun. It's that uh, there's all these dark patterns that are used to uh, make you spend more time on the platform so that these advertisers can make more money. And it results in, you know, just less less healthy, happy people. Uh, and it also results in uh, manipulation. So uh, you're, you, um, you're, you buy things that you don't necessarily want. Uh, uh, the highest bidder also gets your attention. Um, and, uh, and we're uh, addicted to our phones. So this is something that Noster sort of destroys because it because it's an open platform and the data is open. Um, it's very uh, very hard to run a uh, an advertising model on top of Noster. So that means that clients uh, not only have to compete against each other, they have to provide value uh, that they then have to charge for. And we have uh, have yet to see if uh, if we really can build sustainable businesses on Noster. I'm very optimistic that we can. I think. Um, the experience will be so much better that that there will be opportunities uh, for people to um, to monetize it. Um, but uh, let's see. Oh, you know, another thing about about Noster is it, and, and so this is related to the the advertising model stuff. It inverts control. Um, right now, uh, the big tech companies are the ones in control of what is said and not said, and who gets to see it, and uh, who gets the money, um, and all that kind of thing. With Noster. Uh, it, it kind of uh, follows the the principles laid out in the cypherpunk manifesto, uh, uh, especially with regard to privacy. Privacy is not secrecy. Privacy is not being unknown. Privacy is choosing what aspects of yourself to reveal to the world. Um, and so uh, following that definition of privacy, you, you, you as a user are privileged to share particular things about yourself. And in concrete terms, what this can can look like is just not sharing your name. So I'm Hoddlebod. I haven't told you my last name. I, you could find my last name pretty easily, but I'm just choosing not to share that with you. Um, uh, similarly, you know, you can use different accounts for different things. Um, you can create as many different private keys as you want, and you can interact with the network in um, in all kinds of different ways. So you might have one private key for this friend group, and you might have this private key for this friend group. Um, and of course you want to be careful not to be, uh, inauthentic, uh, and, um, and, and, and lose your integrity in doing stuff like that. But there are legitimate reasons to, um, to not share, uh, all, all of your information in one nice, nice package with the entire world. Um, yeah, John, why don't you just unpack, what are some of, some of those other reasons? Cause again, I, I know for a lot of people, you know, they, they think about, uh, anonymous, uh, accounts online and, all of the all of the reasons why somebody could do that seem nefarious. Um, so, what are some of the reasons that you know that aren't nefarious that people would want to interact uh, anonymously or, or pseudonymously? Yeah, I mean, why would you want privacy at all? Why do you put uh, curtains on your house? Why do you put a lock on your door? Uh, it's mm. because um, there are divisions between people that ought to be respected, and that's kind of a civilized way of putting it. And there's also people who would take advantage of you uh, for what you give them. And in this day and age, our data is uh, just as valuable as anything tangible that we have. Um, given the choice, a lot of parties would prefer to know uh, my my birthday or my social security number rather than to have access to my, my physical goods. Um, so privacy is a way of protecting that. Um, 
And, you know, when you, when you think of uh, anonymous people on the internet, you think of drug dealers and, uh, all, and criminals and all that kind of thing. But the ironic thing about that is that, yes, uh, there are people who, um, who use privacy technology in order to do, uh, to do criminal things. But uh, saying that no one should use privacy technology won't stop those people from using it. So you're taking yeah. these tools away from people who, uh, who need them uh, for legitimate uses and uh, allowing the criminals to continue using them. And then that, even that just ignores the fact that a lot of the time the CIA uh, is working with all of these criminals and, um, you know, drug, drug dealers and uh, arms dealers uh, in other countries. Um, so our government is actually using our legitimately produced tax money in order to fund these illegitimate activities uh, against our own interests. It's like, I mean... <laughs> If you don't understand that, I just can't take you seriously when when you say that uh, that uh, privacy is is uh, is a dangerous thing. So as far as legitimate uses go, um, obscuring your identity is is great. So you know one obvious use is direct messages. There there are conversations that st- should stay private. Uh, the Bible has things to say about gossip. Uh, not every piece of information should be public. Uh, there's the principle in Matthew 18 about uh, addressing someone. Uh, it, uh, about their sin and then bringing one other person in and then bringing them before the entire congregation. Um, there are there are limits to what other people can know about you built into creation. So following mm-hmm. those limits is a completely appropriate thing to do. So you've got direct messaging. You've also got uh, reviews. So if you review something on Amazon, your name is attached to it. Um, so, and I'm not sure if you can do this, if you can see all the reviews that someone has made on Amazon. But that could be a really interesting thing to do. Uh, you know, you you meet someone and they might be a business partner and then you review all their Amazon reviews and you find out all those strange things that they've bought. Uh, maybe that's not necessarily like a like a, a, a huge problem to be able to know someone that way, but it is inappropriate and it is embarrassing at the very least. So, um, you know, uh, so leave reviews in a, in a private way. That's that's OK. Um, what else? You know, there's different things that you might want to say uh, for fear of reprisal. So, um, you know, if you, if you disagree with, um, certain people, they will come after you, uh, whether it's to take your job, uh, or whether it's, uh, because you're a political opponent, um, it's, it's totally appropriate to say, uh, I'm going to say this thing about my political beliefs or my religious beliefs. And I work at a company that doesn't tolerate that kind of thing. And so I can't share it, uh, under my real name. Um, I don't know the, the, the examples abound. I think it's, uh, there, there are lots of lots of reasons to stay um, stay anonymous or say stay pseudonymous uh, that are not um, that are not just one off uh, special cases. Um, and really, like I think privacy is a good posture to have in general to to be private by default rather than saying everything publicly um, by default. Because even if an individual piece of information is not can't be used against you in aggregate, that information is extremely uh, extremely valuable. Um, so, you know, let's just say that there's, uh, some water contamination. Um, well, let's just say that, uh, people share their general location when they buy products. Um, so there's that, there's that common, commonly cited story about the, the mother who found out her daughter was pregnant because, uh, Walmart was selling her daughter, um, like, uh, uh, infant care, pregnancy, uh, related, related stuff. So Walmart knew before before this mother did about her daughter's pregnancy, um, and that's that's really standard practice. So 
for for both business and marketing, um, but also just for surveillance. So let's just say that lots of people were having uh, miscarriages in this region, uh, kind of diffuse. You know, it's just like a small uptick. Um, but you could you could harness that that ag- data in the aggregate to find out that there is this particular problem in this particular region. Um, and then you might be able to exploit that in one way or another. Maybe you uh, would uh, fix the water contamination problem or, or, or something like that. But there's, you know, you, you're giving, you're basically giving away your ability to make your own decisions to other people who don't know you and may not have your best interests at heart. So staying private is, is a good safe default. Um, and if you want to be a public figure, you need to choose how much of yourself to actually disclose uh, uh, in order to accomplish that uh, sort of public um, uh, public use case for speech. Yeah, and this is something that we're going to go into in future episodes. We're going to do uh, a couple whole episodes on privacy and uh, and how to think biblically about those things. There's a time and a place for privacy, uh, and so you want to have tools that enable uh, enable that privacy to be able to be chosen. Um, John, if you were, we've got a, a few minutes left here. If you were, you know, if you're in the, you know, if you were one of our audience members who's listening to this and you're thinking, man, okay, so I've, I've got into Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin, I've, I've managed to learn how to use that. And it's, it's a little bit tricky. It can be, uh, challenging. Um, I, I'm interested in, in trying to understand and maybe use, uh, Noster. Is, is there some place that you would recommend they get started? Yeah, I think Nostra.how is probably the best place to go to kind of get a gentle gentle introduction to what Nostra is, what the various clients are that are out there. Um, and the best way to get started is just to have some fun. Uh, it's it's not a very useful protocol yet because there are so few people on it. Um, so yeah. the use, use of these protocols depends very much on uh, how many different people are on it and how many connections there are. You, you know, you're not, they're not, None of the people that you know in real life are probably going to be on Noster right now, but you can be the first. And in the meantime, you can have some fun. Uh, you can contribute to building the project. Um, there's lots of different ways you can contribute, even if you're not a developer. Um, there's You can produce content. You can also pay people for, for the content they produce. And the more these connections happen, um, the more interested people are uh, going to be in staying on there. And of course, in a lot of ways, we're imitating, uh, we're sort of importing the engagement model from centralized social media onto Noster, but that is slowly being broken down uh, and new things are coming out of it. So participate, uh, meet people. Um, the people in Noster are really fun because uh, they're, uh, they're kind of, they take a lot of initiative, they're, they're uh, exploring new avenues. And so there's kind of, you, you kind of get to take advantage of that utopian effect that comes with a new technology. Um, you've got a bunch of early adopters. And so it's a lot more interesting space than the the lowest common denom- denominator platforms. That's going to go away over time, but it'll be replaced by, uh, by sort of communal um, connections. Uh, as you lose contact with people who, uh, who are just weird, uh, weird early adopters like you, um, <laughs> you'll you'll gain contact with people you actually want to be in contact with whether they're people you know in real life or just uh new acquaintances and like i think probably the the best thing for a newcomer to get introduced with especially for bitcoiners is uh zaps zaps are bitcoin micropayments that are built into noster and you know in my opinion with my kind of like 
architect hat on. Zaps aren't all that exciting, but um, they are they are important. Uh, Micropayments uh, through a digital medium are a big deal, and they're a lot of fun. So if you see a post that you like, just click the zap button and send 21 sats or something like that to them. And even if it's not a lot of money, um, it's it's encouraging to the content producer. And sometimes uh, if, if a content producer gets big enough, they can actually make uh, a decent amount of money on that. I've received a decent amount of money um, through zaps for my work on my Nostra client. Um, so that's uh, it's mostly in the realm of fun right now rather than actual, you know, making a living. But uh, that's a great way to get started. Get your get your Lightning uh, wallet set up, hook it up to your Nostra account, and then just start zapping and receiving zaps. Yeah, I do. I do think that's uh, so. I was on Nostra as a, for the last I think nine months or something like that. I think it was December of last year, um, and I do think it, it helped me to understand Bitcoin better uh, because it, it works in very similar ways. Learning to use uh, the public private key pair. Uh, that was that was helpful, um, and then yeah, just it's just a it's providing me a framework through which to better understand Bitcoin and and better understand you know to the to the point about uh, the way social media more broadly works and the way that the internet works, um, and and any any kind of peek behind the curtain that you can get to that in terms of the incentive structures that exist uh, and and how why or why not you might desire. Uh, and change your course of action, your course of consumption or usage of the internet or social media. Anything can help you have a, a more full picture of what's going on is is something that's going to be helpful. So um, I would highly recommend uh, if you are at all interested, hop on Noster and, and um, head over to Noster.how and, and start exploring. Uh, I, I think that was the the document that I used. Uh, but it, it it helps you just go from zero to to being able to use it, um, getting to experience and play around with a a number of different protocols. Um, yeah, I really I really think that it's it's going to be something that again people use more and more as the existing social media and communication platforms uh, continue to have uh, issues. I mean, I, yeah, so. John, thank you for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. And again, if you if this interests you, you can hop over and listen to us uh, every week. We're posting episodes uh, to the Thank God for Nostra podcast. Um, you can, if you listen to our podcast on Fountain, you can stream sats in real time, stream us Bitcoin um, as a way to incentivize us and motivate us uh, to continue to create content and, and post them to those mediums. Um, so John, again, thank you. And we look forward to hosting uh, many more episodes with you over at TGFN, and hopefully this won't be the last time you you grace us with your presence on Thank God for Bitcoin. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. I appreciate you having me. All right, you have a great day, and for the audience, we will see you soon. Uh, we are going to be posting a number of a number of episodes coming up. Uh, we have an episode coming up with Robert Breedlove um, that we recorded. It's a it's a good good long one. Uh, so I think you'll be really interested in that. And then we're going to start getting into the episodes where we kind of uh, just unpack why, start unpacking why Christians, uh, like what are the actual stakes of of Christian usage and understanding of Bitcoin? And uh, again, we're going to kind of unpack, start to unpack the, the theological and ethical uh, questions and concerns that are at play. So uh, be looking forward to that. And in the meantime, again, you can find us on... Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Uh, we mentioned Fountain where you can you can stream Bitcoin. Um, you can also find them on our website, tgfb.com. Um, if you guys, if you guys find value in these podcasts, please do rate them. Um, you know, leave us a review, uh, subscribe, leave us a comment, all those kind of things. They really do help uh, in terms of to help other people find them, find these conversations. So if if, if we're providing value, that would be very helpful uh, to us. Uh, and yeah, so we're grateful for you and we will talk to you on the next episode of the Thank God for Bitcoin podcast. Bye.